Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2017 film Blade Runner 2049. So, we discussed uh, quite a few months ago the original Blade Runner, and now we're doing the sequel, which came out three years ago. This takes place, as it says, in 2049, 30 years after the original Blade Runner. And now our main character in the movie is a Blade Runner named K. But he is a replicant. And in this future, they are now building replicants to be Blade Runners who hunt down and kill other replicants. In the very beginning of the movie, we see him hunt down this one replicant who was a farmer. And right when he's about to kill him, the farmer leaves a somewhat cryptic message saying, you know, you were happy scraping the gutter because you've never seen a miracle before. And they scrape around the farmer's belongings and they find a skeleton and they look at the skeleton and what they're finding is that the skeleton gave birth they could tell by they've performed a c-section and they see a serial number on the bones that means it's a replicant a replicant gave birth and so the rest of the movie is Kay trying to find the child that was given birth and getting to the and obviously you see in the posters it has something to do with officer deckard from blade runner he comes back and yeah this is if i had to name the my favorite film of the past decade of the 2010s this would be it yeah i, I love this movie and i love the original but i think as good as the original is i think this is even better yeah it's uh it it, it, it I, I like the fact that it it develops a little bit more the philosophical themes that were in the original. Um, particularly interesting is the fact that this society has decided to uh, create replicants for the purpose of hunting down other replicants. Um, and you can see why, if they're wanting basically emotionless, soul- soulless killers, then it would be quite easy to genetically uh, engineer a replicant in this universe. Uh, to be that kind of soulless cold killer. And at least at first, K seems to be that way, right? Yes. But he, uh, over the course of the film, uh, eventually, um, kind of like uh, the Rutger Hauer character in the first one, eventually develops, uh, uh, for lack of a better term again, I'll use it again, a soul, a moral sense. And, uh, you know, by the end, he, he sacrifices, basically sacrifices his life in order to reunite Deckard with his daughter. Um, and, yeah, I, I like the story arc of the, the film as a whole. I think it did a good job with that. Uh, I also think uh, the, the, uh, the AI character Joy is interesting uh, because they develop another ambiguity there very purposefully like they did in the first film i would say uh more than the second one here because it it becomes pretty clear k's got a moral sense uh about halfway through this film but in the first one uh um you know you had several replicants that just seemed completely soulless and you have one in here too i forget her name the love love she can she's completely soulless oh my goodness but um, um, at, at any rate, uh, Kay develops that empathy for other people. Um, and 
the Joy character is the one that remains ambiguous through this entire film. Mm-hmm. You're never really, at least I'm not, having watched it just once, um, I'm never quite sure if that AI is in fact a full person. It, it, you get the impression because you're given all kinds of clues in the holographic ads that are part of this city that are joys. They're you know mm-hmm. versions of joy. Um, you you get the impression that it might be the case. This is just a very very well uh, programmed uh, algorithm that it manages to spew out the correct responses to various situations, but it really has no feeling. You think, oh, maybe she's just like that, and she's kind of been programmed to say what the her owner would expect. Uh, in this case, K, uh, even to the point of um, telling telling him that she loves him, and then there, there's that rather bizarre scene with the uh, um, the replicant uh, uh, sex worker, where mm-hmm. the AI soul, for lack of a better term, I shouldn't use that term, but the AI embody. Im- goes inside that body and they they make love right mm-hmm. her, her it's kind of a weird trio there but um you never quite i mean you want to believe she's fully a person and loves uh k but it almost seems too perfect it's well the you see the advertisements for joy yeah and the her catch the slogan is everything you want to hear Yes. And I think because it seems like you, the way you think about it, that she is in love with Kay, that she says many times she's in love with him. You can tell she's, she adores him. You don't. I don't really feel that that love is genuine. You think she thinks he's in love with him, but even if he like treated her like absolute garbage, I don't think her affection would change at all because she's just doing what yeah her owner wants it's everything you want to hear yeah and the the, the, the only thing that makes me think it might be otherwise but i, I tend to say I, I think you're right the preponderance of the um evidence as it were mm-hmm. um points in that direction but she's the one that suggests to him that she uh detach her that that he detach her from that gizmo in his apartment that kind of keeps her confined there, apparently, because it, it contains memory. And that would give um, the, the people that are trying to hunt him down clues as to where they are, right, and what has happened preceding the hunt. She suggests to him, detach me from that thing, carry me, carry me around in that little uh, device. I forget the name of the device, little pin-like thing. To where he can hit a button and her hologram appears, right? Wherever he goes. She's not confined to the house anymore. Um, she's the one that suggests that, right? Yep. So that's the one thing that makes me think, well, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, she's a, a genuine person to that extent. But like you say, the ads say, whatever you want to hear. Yeah. And she never seems to question his belief that he is, in fact, that kid that... Uh, uh, you know, he, he thinks because he has these memories of the little horse and the episode with the little horse that he is, in fact, here, spoiler alert, everybody, yeah. uh, Deckard's kid, Deckard and Rachel's kid from the first movie. Um, so, you know, the, the, the long hunt, uh, eventually by the end of the story, he discovers this not to be the case, right? But she, she just seems to be very encouraging, believes that uh you know that's the correct his correct backstory 
and so forth. Um, it's almost like the AI is expects him to encourage, encourage the AI uh, believes, so to speak, that he would expect that encouragement. So it gives mm-hmm. it to her, gives it to him. It's like I said, it just seems a little too perfect. And people have noted out that the decisions she makes and encourages Kay to do are also buying new products. Like you just mentioned, buying that stick where he can take her everywhere she go, everywhere he goes instead of being confined to his apartment. Yeah. And that's purchasing a product. Yeah. And even that scene at the end when he interacts with the hologram for the advertisement, because she, call, she called him Joe yes. when they were together. And she says in the advertisement, this is a completely new AI. She has nothing to do with what he had. She yeah. says, you look like a good Joe. Yeah. So it's that programming I'm thinking that, you know, like I said, encouraging to yep. subtly encouraging to purchase products like with the um, Wallace Corporation, which she was part of, and also telling him what he, she, what he wants to hear. So I'm of the feeling that she was programmed to just be someone who's enamored with you to be love with you and encourage you to purchase new products but subtly where you won't question it yeah that little bit there uh when he's looking at that big gigantic ad and it's saying and she says you you look like a good joe you know what that made me think of social media because I don't know about you, but you'll be surfing around and look up some news story on something. Go on your Facebook page, and lo and behold, what appears? Ads related to that darn thing you yeah. were looking at. That's that rose. Isn't that funny? It's a, one of the first things that rose to mind when I saw that scene. I thought, wow, you know, they're they're data mining. That's big data right there. They're they do know what he's doing. You know, uh, interesting. And what's interesting also about this is the world, like just like Blade Runner, and thirty years later, yeah, it's it seems like the world has gotten even worse. There's massive amounts of landfill. There is no outside of the um, dam outside of L.A. I couldn't see any natural landmarks. No yeah. flora, no fauna. Nothing but, much left. Oh, yeah. There's and dead trees, which figure yeah. prominently in the movie. Um, and it looks like the human beings are, are reduced to, uh, uh, I love the term they use in the film, protein farming, which basically means grub farming. And this is what they're eating, uh, along with some cleverly designed holograms, virtual realities of tasty meals when, you're in fact, you're eating the grubs. So, yeah, it looks like the world has really gone to hell in a handbasket, even more so than it was in the first film. It's still raining a lot. Yep. Uh, and there is snow. I, I thought that was actually... I thought that was ash. It's snow, okay. yeah. Uh, at the end of the film when he... Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, the, that scene, and there's, you know, it's cold. You can see that. but So it's either snowing or raining all the time in this world. Yeah, that's no fun. <laughs> We're still trying to get off world. So Yeah, they're trying to get off world because everything is basically turned into a Midwestern winter. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the thing, one of the things I found interesting was... They apparently have moved on from the way they tested uh, subjects to see whether they were human beings or replicants. The first film, it's called the Voight-Kampff test. Yeah. Th- that one can—I I understand that test. 
It is supposed to be a, a series of quick responses. You're forced to quick, quickly respond to see if you have any kind of empathy or sympathy, right? And they, they give you these very brief scenarios. Somebody's strangling a cat. What, what do you think? You know, that kind of thing. Makes sense. Now, I'm not understanding the testing procedure in this baseline. film. The baseline. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not. I don't think it's to test whether someone's a replicant or not. I think it's more to test, like, the emotional level or the stress level of the replicant. Because we see he's called Steady K at the beginning. You know, it's you have to say interlinked, and they they. It, they say a few phrases, but then they're asking, "What's like? What's it like holding the hand of someone you love?" Interlinked. You're supposed to just say interlinked and not think about the other one. And you can see after he finds yeah. out, he go, he meets the woman, and he think at that point he thinks he's Kay and Deckard's. He's, De- yeah. he's Deckard's son. He he fails miserably because he's we can't focus. He can't just say interlinked, yeah. and he pauses. Well, you know that, that that's good. That's a good point. I think I think the answer there is that um, the uh, as it were a pure replicant, one that has had no emotional experiences like this, would have nothing in his memory bank, so to speak, that he'd have to be trying to access. Because e- even if you don't answer the question, you you think, well, I, I just need to say interlinked. If that actual experience is kind of in the way it's unavoidable that it's going to be engaged by your mind uh, even if only for a split second and that's all they need to see is that split second to realize oh he's not mm-hmm. completely affectless i i th- that's a good point that, that's a very good so it's a test of whether or not you're a sufficiently affectless soulless yes. killer yeah and yeah. they even because they, the police arrest him because they're measuring his levels. They say he's just way offline. Yeah. So they're saying if you're way offline that that you can't you're not good at your job. We yeah. might have to retire you. And a, another thing I find interesting in it uh, that was much more developed than in the first film was this whole technology of memory implantation and the possibilities that exist if such technology was ever developed for. Uh, technicians to custom design those memories in ways that uh, they could adjust to the particulars of the subject that the uh, memories are being implanted in, A. B, also do it in such a way as to uh, create clues or motivations to actions that that programmer would like to occur and we we see that occur with uh um the memory creator i forget her name in the film that ends up being deckard's daughter she decides i'm going to implant and it looks like i mean it's not altogether clear but i think she did i th- i think she's implanted the the memory of the little toy horse in the episode where uh it's stashed in what looks to be a, a big furnace right yeah um it looks like she's probably implanted that in, in more than one replicant. Um, with what purpose in mind, I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting that she's able to design that. It's her memory, right? She records it, and she's able to design and modify it to put it in inside um, K. And Kay knows it's not his own memory, so to speak. He knows it's implanted, 
but it's a memory of a small boy being bullied and then hiding the, the little wooden horse. When in, in reality, it was her when she was a young girl that it happened to. So she's able to modify this thing. It's very interesting. And it had me going. I, 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 I don't know about you the first time. Yeah, uh, you I, watched I didn't, it. I, didn't I figured see that coming that she was yeah. Deckard's daughter, not Kay. Yeah, and, and so they had me going there. That was great, and and again, that's much more explored. Uh, that ability to design memories and implant them, um, and as it were, use them as clues. Right, that's much more developed in this film than in the first one. I, I really liked that aspect of it. And, and it brings, because her is, she is one of the biggest um, pl- uh, important plot points of the movie, because she is not only the child of Deckard, but she is also the daughter of Rachel, who is a replicant. The repli- she gave birth to her. Yes. And that gives the question, because it's constant, the things that they're constantly, what makes you human? Now that replicants can give birth to human life, what does that make? Does that mean replicants should now be given the same rights as humans? Because we see at the end when it's that twist reveal, but there is this movement among the replicants. Yeah. Not only the uh, sex worker that he met earlier, she was part of that movement, but the woman who took care of Rachel when she was giving birth, she is the leader of that movement, and she's a replicant. Yeah. And you see very briefly that it's part of this movement that the replicants are now fighting to gain rights. Yes. And I... Did you have a chance to watch the short films? No. There were three short films released previously. Um, one followed that farmer right before he gets caught. One was Wallace, the guy introducing one of his new replicants. And then one was ta- when it talks about, they talk about the blackout, when everything went black. That shows that. And it was these replicants going and creating this blackout, fighting for their rights. So it's still this yeah. idea of what makes are they human even though they are you know they are built in a factory so to speak yeah and I, I think again i think we talked about this with the first film i think the answer is yes they are and it's actually beside the point um uh, whether or not they can reproduce and also it's beside the point that they have relatively brief lifespans and i think what makes them human it, as we see in again in the case of k and we see in the case of those revolutionaries, for lack of a better term, is even it's interesting, even though they have purposefully been designed by Tyrell and Watson both. Watson, that was his name. Oh, Wallace. Right? Wallace, sorry. Purposefully designed to be uh, affectless, emotionless, lack of a moral sense, so that they can effectively be tools for, as it were, real human beings. Um, it doesn't work, and it's probably because ultimately the genetics that, um, uh, that is used to create these beings is derivative of actual human beings. So, as it were, the coding comes out. You know, the, the consequences of the coding comes out, and they they develop a moral sense. They have uh, 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 connections of love and affection with each other. It's bound to happen. It's unavoidable. As hard as you try to engineer that a way you can't, right? So that being the case, they're persons. And mm-hmm. everything else is beside the point. Uh, the, the fact that they're trying to uh, uh, fight for their rights and their freedom, right, 
shows that they consider themselves to be persons, and it shows that they consider themselves to be very much in the kind of position that uh, African Americans were in the United States pre-Civil War. Same thing. Um, so I, I, it would be curious to see how they would develop uh, uh, this, um, this universe's literature on the subject of slavery. Um, because if you look at the actual literature regarding slavery that was generated in the in America before the Civil War, you had people uh, explaining away that kind of behavior on the part of black Americans, uh, saying that essentially they were just brightly imitating the white Americans. Hmm. And, and you could probably see some kind of rationalization of that kind uh, happening, <laughs> certainly within the confines of the... Uh, Wallace Corporation or Tyrell Corporation before that in this world. But you see, they fail. They fail. And he, he's even, as far as I know, attempted to engineer these replicants so they can reproduce, but um, uh, still remain, as it were, soulless replicants, even though they can reproduce. And they become much more like uh, animals in that regard, like how we use animals, farm animals, right? Um, but it fails. And once again, I think that's because of the the uh, source code, so to speak, the genetic code that uh, uh, was originally used to create these things. Yeah, we, we were talking about, you see, because now, because Tyrell was murdered by um, Roy Batty in the original, we have a new runner of that corporation. He's now Wallace, played by Jared Leto from that movie we decided not to talk about. But... Um, He's a different. He's not quite. He's a lot different than Tyrell. He's he's blind for one. Yeah. But he has a more of a god complex, I think, than Tyrell does. You see in the way he talks that he believes he is, you know, somebody bigger than he really is. He, you know, when Deckard says, "You don't have any children, do you?" and he says, "I have millions." Yeah. He he's. He sees them as his children, but we see in that very beginning when that one replicant is born, he decides to kill her. Yeah, because he didn't. I, f yeah. I forget exactly, but it, he didn't. She didn't quite meet his specifications, so he feels because they're his children, because he created them, he can do whatever he wants with them. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't answer to anybody else but him because he is in his mind. He is God to them. Yeah, uh, he is of all the characters in both films easily the most soulless yes and uh it's uh intended to be ironic i think um um because uh you know he's he's allegedly a fully uh, a full human being but uh he has no compunction with killing that uh, uh freshly born um replicant he doesn't think twice about ordering the killing of the rachel uh, replica, replicant that's offered to Deckard later in the film. Um, so it's interesting. It's ironic. I, now I must say his character to me struck struck me as going a little over the top. That's Jared Leto. Yeah. yeah okay. He, he, I just I, I I can't stand him. Sorry, Jared Leto. <laughs> for some reason, you're listening to this podcast, but I find you incredibly annoying. Yeah. He, and he's full of yourself. Well, and the character is full of himself. Yeah, it kind of so works. But. It, it, well, it, it's too much. Yeah. It's almost too much. I thought it was too much when he when he did kill that freshly born replicant. He could have made the same point otherwise. I think. Um, other than him, I think love is the the second most 
soulless uh, character in this film. She's kind of his sidekick. Which is ironically is named. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, but she's as it were has an excuse. She is a replicant. He has no excuse. He's a human being, and he's completely heartless. Um, and uh, uh, deserves to die, but he, he doesn't die. Right. We don't ever see what happens to him. They may be setting up a sequel that with that. This movie made no money. They're not getting a sequel. They're not gonna get a yeah. sequel. Okay. Um, but um looking you talk, we've talked a little bit about um the replicants. One of the things that people have criticized this film for, some people feel that the movie is sexist. They say it does negative portrayal of women. And I I forget the exact statistics, but people who went to see the film most of them were men or the women who did see it like had a distance from it they did not like it mm-hmm. um one of the things they say like this is you know the women are either portrayed as sex workers like the i forget the character's name but the actress's name is Mackenzie Davis or even Joy is somebody to you know we could say in a very sexist role. She's staying at the home yep. in the beginning. She's making him dinner. She doesn't work. Yep. And she just is there to basically please him and tell him everything he wants to hear. Yeah. And you even see like there is a the whole sex district where he where he walks to and that ridiculous wall, which I thought was like that doesn't sound very comfortable. But yeah. anyway, but it's it's like you even see the posters. I mean, when he sees Joy at the beginning, she's it's this giant hologram and she's completely naked. Yeah, right. But I will say, yeah, that is this is a dystopian society. This is not a utopia. This is not a society that's ideal and, and it, 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 it fits it, it fits the society because the whole point of the replicants is that they are basically slaves yes and objects to be used um so i can see that it fits it but at the same time i i know about halfway through the film i i, I kept i said to myself as i was watching this especially the scene with the sex workers uh, and the ads uh, at some point i said you know what this is a little too much it's distracting to use a phrase we used two episodes ago, it's a little too Miramax for me, <laughs> you know. And for those that don't know what we're talking about, Miramax film films was run by what's his name again? Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, and he he has this penchant or had his penchant in this film for putting in gratuitous sex scenes for pure interests, obviously. Um, and this movie started going that direction, I think. And I think it, it detracted from the experience for me, actually. I, I remember thinking roughly the first half of the film, I thought, wow, this is just an amazing adaptation of this world. It's even better than the first. But then it, it started throwing in the sex stuff more frequently. And it, it became distracting and it miramaxed it a bit for me. So I can understand where that critique is yeah. coming from. I understand they needed to have some in there because, once again, this is a universe where these... Yeah. these I think that that's it because and this is also in the future, so you're going to be less, uh, what's the word, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, prudish. Like yeah. People are going to be less concerned about we're just going to have this giant hologram of a naked woman. We don't care. Nobody's going to care. People want to see that. You even see the hologram of this other... Like it's in Chinatown, some of this is Asian woman, very scantily dressed in a yeah. schoolgirl outfit. Yeah. People are going to be wanting to see that. People are going to be less, you know, there's less inhibitions. So I think, I, I think, I don't can, think it's just titillation for titillation. No, it less, isn't. It's showing this, it is, it is a, showing, showing the, this is the a state society. of that society. Yeah. I agree with that, but I, I still think it's a little too much. 
Right, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their other podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.